much. I, I am delighted to have my motives so clearly psychoanalyzed, my, my genealogy so comprehensively unveiled. Um, however, my destination, just slightly wrongly addressed, Westminster Cathedral is a few hundred yards down the road from Westminster Abbey and belongs to a rather different denomination than mine. Um, so... If you're prepared to take that with a little pinch of salt, maybe the other remarks might similarly be just, you know, <laughs> loosened somewhat. Anyway, Ben, thank you very much, and thank you all. It's great to be back here. I actually can't remember whether it was three years or four years ago that I was here, but the time slips away, and it's great to be back in this lovely place again and to have this wonderful Methodist singing. I mean, they, they, they do sing in other places where I have been recently, but I think that hymn was just very special, and I sense uh, both in the words and in the way that you were singing it that almost all I have to do is to say amen as a summary of my lecture and then sit down again, but I'm not quite going to do that. Um, uh, I am going to explore with you some reflections that I've been having about the resurrection arising out of various bits of work that I'm doing, and these are in the form of three lectures which summarize things that could be said and indeed which I am saying elsewhere at much, much greater length. So you're getting a kind of a bird's eye view of the project as it's appearing at the moment. And whereas in some places when I do lectures on this subject, I have a sense that I'm pushing a very large boulder up a very steep hill because both in the UK and in North America, there are many both inside the church and outside the church who have assumed from day one that Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead and that therefore anyone who tries to tell you different is uh, just from a different planet. Uh, I have a sense already from all that's been said here and all that I know of this establishment that that is not going to be my task here. However, I'm not changing the material that much. I am giving it to you as part of your equipment in your apologia for the faith among those with whom you work and live and those to whom in God's good time you will minister. And I want to begin today with uh, a mention of some recent writing on the resurrection from within what might be called the scholarly mainstream, because these are the books that are out there. I've been saying to my students in Harvard as I've been giving them book lists, the books that are on the book list are not the books that I agree with. They don't exist yet um, on this subject. Um, <laughs> The, the books that I'm giving you are the books that are out there that represent what you've got to deal with. And that's enormously important. You can't just read the stuff you agree with. You've got to read what's out there. And I'm going to talk to you about three of those very swiftly, just to pinpoint three issues. And then, uh, by way of challenging the adequacy and accuracy of those accounts, to mount an argument of my own about what the early Christians actually meant when they said that Jesus of Nazareth had been raised from the dead, and when they used the term resurrection and its cognates in that connection. And this first presentation will get to the heart, I hope, of the New Testament period by looking at what Jews in that period believed when they used the word resurrection. Then this afternoon I'm going to look at the rise of the early church and say what theories can be given for why the early church happened, granted that Jesus had been crucified, 
and that we have to take seriously what they meant by saying that he'd been raised from the dead. And then tomorrow morning I shall look at the more detailed accounts in Paul and the Gospels. But to begin with, just some notes about three recent and important books. Dominic Crossan has written another big fat book, this one called The Birth of Christianity, subtitled Discovering What Happened in the Years Immediately After the Execution of Jesus. Now, this book is even more of a tour de force than others that we've had from Crossan, and there is one particular reason for this, that astonishingly in addressing this question, there is virtually no mention of the resurrection, which one might have supposed to be among the most important things from the early Christian viewpoint that happened after the execution of Jesus. To this extent, it may be odd to introduce the book into a discussion of resurrection, except to say this is how a lot of scholars try to do the rise of the early church. Jesus was crucified, and then his followers just carried on doing stuff, and gradually the church happened, and gradually people started telling stories about the resurrection. And for Crossan, that might be 10 or 12 years later. But Crossan's brief treatment, which is mostly in the prologue to his book, he states, he hardly argues, and this is a very interesting new shift, I think, in the contemporary debate, that within the pagan world of that day, visions of people who had died were very common. People were always coming back from the dead in one way or another, quote-unquote. That the dead could return and interact with the living was a commonplace of the Greco-Roman world. Neither pagans nor Jews would have asserted that it couldn't happen. That such interaction could generate important processes and events, as with Hector saving Aeneas to found the Roman people and the Julian ascendancy, was also a commonplace. So Crossan says visions and resurrections are going on all over the place. So we should abandon, he says, the sterile debate between the rationalist secularists who say that resurrection couldn't happen and therefore didn't, and the rationalist fundamentalists who say that it did just that once. He notes that Paul is a problem for this reading because Paul has this within an eschatological framework. And Crossan says, well, why should he have done that? Isn't that a bit odd? Why should this coming back from the dead have cosmic and apocalyptic connotations if it was the sort of thing that happened all the time? Now, I've written elsewhere about Crossan's book as a whole, and I just want to say a couple of things uh, about this particular point. Crossan has elided several things into one general category. It's easy for him to do that for a reason which I'll come to in a minute. He lumps together visions and apparitions, various forms of contact with the recently departed, and he calls them all resurrection. Bad mistake, historically. In the one later discussion of the resurrection, he adds to these a further element, the sense in the early church of Jesus' presence. We sense Jesus' presence with us today. And he says, well, they sense Jesus' presence. That's what they meant when they said he was raised from the dead. So how then did the stories get going that we find in Luke and John particularly? Ah, says Crossan, there was a tradition in peasant societies of women lamenting for their dead in a particular format. There were ways in which they did that, and some societies they still do it today. But then also, as well as the female lament tradition, there were men in the early church who studied the scriptures from a scribal point of view, and there they found stories about the righteous man who was vindicated after his suffering and so on. And Crossan says that when these two traditions fused and met and merged, you get born what he calls one passion resurrection story, once and for all forever. These then are symbolic fictions, 
which grew out of these early communal practices. And the burden of my song today and tomorrow, and this will not surprise you or shock you, is that whatever we say about the early Christian claim that Jesus was raised from the dead, it was always much, much more specific than that. For them, it did indeed involve something happening to Jesus which had happened to no one else before or in their own day ever again. Crossan's complex and very clever reconstruction would seem to all the early Christians for whom we have actual evidence quite unnecessary. They had a much simpler, though far more challenging, story to tell. Now, Crossan drew on the work of Gregory Riley, a contemporary Claremont scholar who recently wrote a book called Resurrection Reconsidered. And he represents what has come to be, in some circles, a new critical orthodoxy, which runs like this. The bodily resurrection of Jesus entered Christianity as a late development, a re-Judaizing of a tradition that had initially been innocent of any such thing. Crucial here, of course, is how you read Paul, which we'll come back to tomorrow. But Riley provides the backbone for people like Crossan and others, saying that the initial belief of the early church, that many had seen Jesus alive again, is to be located within that wider world of pagan apparition stories. There are many variations within contemporary scholarship on this theme. Riley presents the evidence in a way which, when you actually look at it, seems to me quite remarkably unperceptive. I think any early Christian would have given Riley pretty short shrift on being told that when you poured libations down a funnel through the coffin lid onto the dead, meaning that the dead were in some sense sharing a meal with the living, a regular grave practice which actually went on in some early Christianity as well. Riley says, ah, there you are, they're sharing a meal with the recently departed person. That's just like what you find in John 21 and in Luke 24. Well, Frankly, it just isn't. He hasn't learned to read the stories. And likewise, when you line up the stories, he has similar stuff from Homer, Hesiod, Herodotus, Virgil, Lucian, various other classical writers about tomb practices, people talking about sharing fellowship with the dead. And then you look at Luke 24 and John 20 and 21. They just are not in the same ballpark at all. And I could argue that in detail, but I suspect you don't need convincing of that. But we have witnessed in the last few years, you see, an interesting turn of events in New Testament scholarship. It used to be the case in modernism that people said, well, we just know that resurrections don't occur, dead people stay dead. Now we have a classic postmodern acceptance that all sorts of funny, flaky stories are out there. People believe all sorts of odd things including people coming back from the dead all the time. So there we are. That's what some people believed in the early Christians are just belonging on that map. Can the historian really be satisfied with that? Certainly not. Crossan then builds, uh, Riley then builds on that foundation his own account of why the stories in John developed, namely, if you think about it, the role of Thomas in John, which is very ambiguous, reflects, says Riley, polemic between Johannine Christians and Thomas Christians within the early church. And John chapter 20 is a way of John putting down the Thomas Christians as the wrong sort of people. 
and uh, Riley, in company with so many other contemporary New Testament scholars, wants to rehabilitate the Thomas people, who are, of course, a contemporary fiction, uh, as a really important and vibrant strand of early Christianity. Now, that's my second book, and uh, it's important, it's out there, you've got to deal with it, and that's just a summary. Uh, Another but very, very different work by a senior leading Scottish scholar now teaching in Germany, uh, A.J.M. Wedderburn, his book Beyond Resurrection. The thesis of this book is quite simple, that the traditions concerning Jesus' resurrection, Wedderburn says, are so contradictory that though something or other may have happened, we can't get back to it. We have to remain agnostic about what might have happened. But since the concept of individual survival of death is philosophically problematic, Wedderburn says the best thing we can do as Christians, he wants still in some sense to call himself a Christian, is to move, quote, beyond resurrection and a faith bewitched by that concept to a faith that is thoroughly this worldly, end of quote. He is moving theologically towards the English writer Don Cupid. And towards the end of the book, the real animus becomes clear. Wedderburn, like many other contemporary writers, angrily rejects a God who could intervene in the world, a sovereign and omnipotent God who provides what Wedderburn calls a cozy familiarity on the basis of an easy anthropomorphism, quote-unquote. Another classic postmodern move. The question of God is on the agenda. Which God do you believe in? That question wasn't on the agenda 25 years ago when I was doing graduate work. We all just assumed you knew what the word God meant. Now at least the question is on the agenda. Which sort of God do you believe in? That's an important question. But Wedderburn, it seems to me, makes several moves which are quite unwarranted with the New Testament. I only pick up one. At several, and this is what I'm going to come back to and develop. This is where I think we have to start. At several points, Wedderburn makes a nod in the direction of Pharisaic Judaism, Paul's Jewish context. But he never takes seriously the question what precisely a first century Pharisee might believe, including by the term resurrection. The only times he comes near that are to say, well, Paul does have some funny bits where he seems to believe that Jesus was bodily raised. Well, that's just a hangover from his previous life. And we, with the aid of the blessed tool in German Zachkritik, material criticism, we can think Paul's thoughts better than he did himself, and we can free him, this is the argument, we can free Paul like a psychotherapist freeing a client from the constraints of unfortunate buried memories. Wedderburn has not, for all his massive learning, attempted the most basic task of all, which is to ask, what did the early Christians mean when they used the word and concept resurrection to speak of what had happened to Jesus and to explain why that had started them off in a whole new direction? And it's to that task that I'm now going to turn. I hope this doesn't look like Um, simply bowling over a few skittles that are sitting right in front of me. I mean, it's very easy to criticize Crossan and Riley and Wedderburn in front of a sympathetic audience. Um, I don't want to take cheap shots at them. These are the serious debates that I'm engaged in at length, and these are the serious debates that people out there on the street, people who read Time magazine and listen to um, news hour programs and so on, these are the stuff that they're getting into, and this is what you've got to be able to tackle. Preliminary remark. My reading of the recent literature on this topic leads me to guess that much of this revisionist material grows in a soil where a very low-grade view of Jesus' resurrection has often been common coin. I discover that a lot of people, including a lot of Christians, simply use the word resurrection to mean life after death. And since they think of life after death, 
in a rather vague and certainly disembodied fashion. They think that predicating resurrection of Jesus is simply a way of saying he went to heaven when he died, or something like that. That is such a huge misunderstanding, and it affects many presentations, even at a scholarly level, that seem to assume that the only meaning of bodily resurrection would be, oh, this is proof that God can do spectacular miracles sometimes, or this is proof that Jesus is really rather special. We have got so far from the New Testament meaning that even scholars who are studying the texts just get bogged down in these popular misunderstandings. Now, there are two ways of approaching the question of resurrection in Judaism which need to be given due weight. One approach is to ask, how did the hope of resurrection function within the worldview of Judaism, within the world of story and symbol and praxis and question that together make up that worldview? And then also, the second question is to ask, where does the hope for resurrection fit within the spectrum of beliefs about life after death held by Second Temple Jews? Resurrection started out life as story, not as dogma. When we meet resurrection or something like it within Second Temple Judaism, we find it primarily as part of a story, the story of exile and restoration. The big obvious passage is Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones, where the hope for resurrection is expressed in this vivid, almost surrealist metaphor of dry bones coming back to life, acquiring flesh and sinews and ultimately breath. Not only does the context state it quite clearly that that this means return from exile, it also, by means of the previous chapters, sets up a series of connotations such as rescue and cleansing and covenant renewal. And arguably the same is true of that very difficult passage, Isaiah 24, 5 and 6, where in 26 you get, Thy dead shall live, their bodies shall rise, O dwellers in the dust sing for joy. We're never quite sure whether that is a prediction of a literal bodily resurrection or a metaphor for the restoration of Israel after the exile. So resurrection, I think, begins life as a metaphor for return from exile with all the context of redemption that that possessed. But... The story told by Second Temple Jews through to Jesus' day and beyond never imagined that this real return had actually taken place. Ben Sirach might be an exception, First Maccabees might be an exception, but those only emphasize the general rule. There has been a certain amount of controversy about this claim in recent years since I have been pushing it and one or two other scholars have been trying to pull back. You'll see a very interesting discussion of return from exile in, an es- in various essays by Craig Evans, and I can give your New Testament professors the references for those if you want to follow them up. But nobody supposed that the prophecies of Isaiah or Ezekiel had yet been fulfilled in the 2nd or 1st century B.C., They still lived within the world of telling the story of exile and restoration. And within that narrative, exile became focused on the suffering of the martyrs and resurrection became focused on their vindication. And here we find Daniel chapter 12. Daniel 12 is the text to which the rabbis look back later as the key proof text about resurrection. And here we also find 2 Maccabees, Read Second Maccabees, preferably when the sun is shining and you're feeling happy, because it's a, it's a pretty unpleasant story. It's like a kind of a horror movie. It's remarkably grisly accounts of the martyrs who, as they're being torn apart, taunt their torturers 
by assuring them that they, the martyrs, will receive back from Israel's God the physical bodies that are now being cut up and torn, torn apart. We, God will give us these hands, this tongue, these entrails. Take them if you like. God will give them back to me again. How physical can you get? This is resuscitation. This is simply coming back to a bodily existence again. Now, it's important to recognize this is a development of and not a departure away from Ezekiel 37. Exile continues. And in the early 2nd century, exile took the form of brutal Syrian oppression. Israel's God would restore his people, and those who died in the struggle would, of course, be raised from the dead to share in the eventual restoration. And this is what you find in subsequent references like for Ezra to Baruch and various other Jewish writings of that period. And underlying all these stories, as in the hymn we sang 20 minutes ago, is the unshakable Jewish belief in God as creator, that God can take the dust of the earth and do new things with it, because that's what he did at the beginning, and that's what he'll do again. Frail children of dust and feeble as frail, in thee do we trust. This is creation theology. This is classic Second Temple Jewish theology. And it's also a belief in the justice of this God. There will be a time when God's moral order will be finally asserted and vindicated. Notice how throughout this period in Judaism and in Christianity, when you get the strong theology of the bodily resurrection, you're also getting the strong theology of God's justice, which is a saving and healing and restorative justice, as well as a punitive justice being brought firmly to bear on God's world. A couple of details within this very brief account of where resurrection belongs within the controlling Second Temple Jewish narrative. First, the Pharisees. Resurrection was an important feature of Pharisaic theology. Josephus, from time to time, the great Jewish historian writing in the generation immediately after the apostles, Josephus describes the Pharisaic belief in one passage, in Jewish War Book 2, in terms of the soul passing into a new body. Some people have thought this means that Josephus believed that the Pharisees believed in reincarnation or transmigration of souls. It doesn't. It means what, he, what we would call re-embodiment. It's a way of Josephus explaining to a pagan audience something which they would find very odd indeed, namely resurrection. And likewise, when Josephus puts into the mouth of the martyrs on Masada in 74 AD great stoic-like speeches about the nobility of a death in, in, in the cause, we should understand these in terms of Josephus' attempts to present his fellow countrymen to an educated Roman audience rather than an accurate description of the sort of thing they would have actually said. What is vital to realize about the Pharisees is that in Jesus and Paul's day, the majority of them were hardliners, what we would call Shammaiites, followers of Shammai, longing for the, the restoration of Israel. And resurrection functioned for them, and this is my point, not as an abstract doctrine about what happened to people after death, but as a statement about the great turnaround with Israel, in Israel's fortunes that would shortly take place, and about the fact that when that happened, those who had died in the struggle would be raised 
to share the blessings of the age to come. Pharisaic belief is a development of the same underlying story we see in Daniel and 2 Maccabees. The second detail is just a footnote about the book called The Wisdom of Solomon. People routinely cite Wisdom of Solomon chapter 3 as evidence for the immortality of the soul rather than the resurrection of the dead. That is because they stop after the first two or three verses which say the souls of the righteous are in the hand of God in the sight of the unwise they seem to die but they are at peace that is read out at funeral services in my tradition often sung set to music but the passage goes on verses 7 and 8 in the time of their visitation they will shine forth and run like sparks through the stubble and the Lord will reign over them forever and they will govern nations and rule over peoples where are they at the moment they're in the hands of God in the form of a disembodied soul are they going to stay there no They will rise again in the kingdom of God. That is what Wisdom 3 is all about. The immortality is a temporary stage. Now, there's much more that could be said about resurrection within the Jewish symbolic universe. But I want to move on to the part that resurrection plays within the Jewish hope for life after death. People used to say Greeks believed in immortality, Jews believed in resurrection. It ain't that simple. There's a much more complicated framework. There is a spectrum of Jewish belief about life after death in this period. And when you put the New Testament in the middle of that spectrum, it sheds a flood of light on what the early Christians thought they were talking about. At one end were the Sadducees, who seemed to have denied any doctrine of a future life. At the other end were the Pharisees, who affirmed a future embodied existence, and who seemed to have begun to develop theories about how people might continue to exist in that time lag between death and resurrection. I'll say more about that later, one of the other lectures. Somewhere in between are various Jewish writings which affirm life after death, but deny bodily resurrection. Philo would be an example. The book Jubilees seems to take that view, and possibly, though this is still controversial, the Dead Sea Scrolls. If the scrolls do believe in resurrection, they keep pretty darn quiet about it most of the time. There are only one or two little hints, and they may well be properly understood as metaphorical. Scholars have begun in recent years to try to correlate this spectrum of belief about life after death with the social and cultural positions of the people who held these views, which is an interesting task. The Pharisees were revolutionaries, up to a point, at least the hardline right-wingers were. Resurrection fits this position like a glove. Because if you believe that God will re-embody those who die in the struggle, you can get on and fight for Israel to be free, because not only does it not matter if you get killed, it'll actually be a glorious thing if you get killed, and it'll ascertain all the more that you will have um, this resurrection when it happens. But those who are more inclined to trim characteristic Jewish beliefs to the present Hellenistic cultural climate for intellectual reasons and for socioeconomic or cultural reasons, will naturally have inclined more towards the view of immortality, not just because it was a Greek view, but because it sustained or at least belonged with a different 
political agenda. Now, often, the Hellenists are the upper class and vice versa. We can't assume, though, that the more aristocratic you are, the less you'll believe in life after death. Examples of burial customs from other cultures completely disprove that. The rich and powerful normally take care that they're going to be rich and powerful in the next life as well, sometimes to the extent of having slaves killed and buried with them so that the same slaves can go on ministering to their needs later on. That would leave the Sadducees as a bit of an anomaly. But... Uh, Their denial of resurrection is more comprehensible, I suggest, on the assumption that not merely was resurrection, they said, not taught in the Torah, the five books of Moses, though they would no doubt have insisted upon that, but that it was a revolutionary doctrine, and they were in power, and they didn't want people believing that kind of stuff, because when people believe that kind of stuff, they do frightening things. Within this picture, we must notice some of the ways in which those who believed in resurrection could envisage this intermediate state. First, as we saw a moment ago, the wisdom of Solomon spoke of the souls of the righteous. That may have been a Hellenistic borrowing, but it is here employed within a very thoroughgoing scheme about the coming kingdom of God. Second, in the synoptic tradition, where Jesus is debating with the Sadducees, he speaks about the patriarchs as being in the present alive to God. They are alive to God. And that we find in various texts, including in the Apostolic Fathers, it seems to be a way of saying something which is really rather difficult for a creational monotheist to say, that somebody who is dead and whose body has not yet been resurrected is nevertheless alive in God's presence. This is closely cognate with what Paul says when he talks about departing and being with Christ. There's much more to be said about that debate with, between Jesus and the Sadducees, and uh, if you want to ask me about that in the talk back tomorrow, that would be fine. Likewise, the third way in which the, the righteous dead could be thought of as being still alive was that they were in an angel-like existence. People often say, oh, they just believed the dead went to be angels. And then that slides downhill into the easy folk belief that many people in your culture and mine believe. After Princess Diana was killed in that road accident a couple of years ago, we had in Litchfield Cathedral books of condolence which were open. We had seven on the go at once, and people were queuing up for hours to sign them. This happened all over the country. And many of the things people wrote in those books were very indicative of folk beliefs about life after death. And one of the regular themes was, God didn't have enough angels in heaven, so he called you to come and join them. Now, it's very clear, I think, in the New Testament that the dead are not angels. They are angel-like in the sense that they are discarnate beings, but God does not intend them to remain that way. The angelic, angel-like state is one mode they can be in. Do you know that splendid story in Acts chapter 12 when the church are having a prayer meeting that Peter, who is under sentence of death, may be released from prison? It's one of my favorite little stories about the church's great faith in prayer because there they are having an all-night prayer meeting and when Peter shows up at the door, they don't believe it's him. (laughs) I find that actually enormously encouraging. I don't know about you. Um, And the, the, the little maid, Rhoda, who goes to the door and hears Peter knocking, so excited that she forgets to unlock the door and let him in, she comes back and she says, it's Peter, it's Peter. And they say, you must be mad. She said, no, it really is him, it's his voice. And they say, it must be his angel. Do you see? They knew, as 
psychologists in our culture, culture tell us, and it, it, it happens, I know of people to whom it has happened, that sometimes after someone you love dearly has died, there is a momentary strong awareness of their presence, sometimes a visualization, sometimes within the room. Often they're looking very well and healthy and, and cheerful, and, and then they go again. And sometimes people have this experience before they know that the person has died. In fact, before there was any suggestion that they were likely to die. This is well-known, well-written up in the literature. And some scholars have tried to say, maybe that's what happened in the case of Jesus. Now, you see, they knew about those experiences. And when that sort of thing happened, they said, this is an angel-like visitation. They didn't say, Peter has been raised from the dead. Having an experience like that rather indicated that Herod had killed him. And it was perfectly compatible with them going the next morning, burying the body, and then a year or two later collecting up the bones, folding them up, putting them in an ossuary for secondary burial. That sort of thing was quite comprehensible, quite well known. So people could talk about the dead being alive in an angelic sort of existence or in a spirit form of existence. When Paul is on trial in Acts 23, he puts the cat among the pigeons in the court by saying, look here, I'm on trial about the resurrection of the dead. Rather like an Anglican coming to a Methodist seminary and saying, what we're here to talk about is holiness and uh, seeing what happens, you know, um, or, or in some other circles perhaps, you know, we're here to discuss the rapture and suddenly the room breaks up into disarray. Paul says we're here to discuss resurrection. That's what this trial is about. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees start arguing. And Luke explains the argument by saying the Sadducees believe, do not believe in the resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess them both. And the word both does not usually mean, in fact virtually never means, all three, but just two. And it looks as though what Luke is saying is the Sadducees deny the resurrection and they also deny the two modes of understanding the intermediate state that normally accompany resurrection belief. Namely, that in the intermediate state people are in an angelic mode of being or a spirit mode of being. And so the Pharisees say... There's no problem with this man, Paul, supposing an angel or a spirit spoke to him. They don't say supposing he has actually experienced resurrection. They assume that that can't have happened. I think maybe he's had a visitation from somebody, an angel or a spirit. Now, you might object that Jesus appears to speak in the synoptic passage of the resurrection state itself as being comparable to that of angels. It is possible to take this as being to the present state of the dead in their quasi-angelic existence. They neither marry nor are given in marriage. Or it's possible to take it referring to the resurrection state, not to imply that the resurrection is itself discarnate, angelic in that sense, but simply to state, which is the point of the discussion, that the resurrected dead are in this respect at least like the angels in heaven, namely that they do not marry, because the whole discussion turns, as you will know, on the Leveret law that in the Old Testament, when a brother dies without a child, his wife is given to the next brother down, and so on. Since the resurrected dead do not die again, this is the point of the argument, the law in question becomes redundant. And in particular, we have to note that in Luke's own resurrection account, Luke chapter 24, Luke's Jesus explicitly distinguishes himself from being a spirit, i.e. someone who is now in the intermediate state. 
he's gone through any intermediate state like a flash and out the other side. And Luke believes that that's what's happened. So it's not likely that Luke, in writing that up, both in Luke chapter 20 and then in Acts, would mean something radically different from that. Now, the point of this discussion is to show that Jews in this period had reasonably well-developed ideas about such things, a range of concepts and vocabulary ready at hand. The intermediate state was a subject of discussion and was routinely distinguished from the eventual goal of resurrection. Of course, if you didn't believe in resurrection, but believed instead in continuing disembodied immortality, what a Pharisee would see as an intermediate state might be thought of as a final state. Do you see what I mean? But if, and this is my point, if a first century Jew said that somebody had been raised from the dead, the one thing they did not mean was that that person had now gone to a state of disembodied bliss there either to rest forever or to wait until the great day of re-embodiment. You can easily test this by supposing that somebody who in, say, 150 BC, who passionately believed that the Maccabean martyrs were righteous and true Israelites, or somebody in 150 AD who believed that Simeon ben Kozibar really had been the true Messiah, supposing that any such existed, which I doubt, would anyone there have said that the martyrs or Simeon had been raised from the dead, meaning by that that they are somewhere alive spiritually with God and that their cause is being looked after and that one day God's cause will triumph? The answer is obvious. Someone in that position might have said that the martyrs or Ben Kozibar were alive in an angelic mode or a spirit mode. Their souls were in the hand of God. They would not have dreamed of saying that they had already been raised from the dead. Resurrection meant re-embodiment. And what's more, resurrection would happen to all the righteous dead simultaneously. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the lot. They would all rise together. Nobody suggested that the martyrs had been re-embodied. Nobody suggested that the new age had dawned, except, of course, the Christians, which would be my point in the next lecture. So the point to be made here is simple and clear. Yes, there was no one accepted universal Jewish belief. It remains highly likely that the Pharisaic belief was the most popular and was popular with a good many people and sustained an ideology which was quite dominant in the first century. But however wide the spectrum may have been, however many different positions different Jews took on it, resurrection is not a general word for life after death. It denotes one position on that spectrum, and that position always meant re-embodiment. So far as what we can tell, it was always part of what could be summarized by Daniel, by wisdom, by other writers in terms of the coming kingdom of God. And it belonged within the narratival and symbolic and practical world in which movements came and went, longing for and seeking to bring about the kingdom of God. Now, actually, once you understand how Second Temple Judaism works, you can run it at first century Christianity in the New Testament, and you will see the arguments falling into place. However, I'm going to suggest that if you want to see just a hint as to how that's done, you come back for the next two lectures, because it's within this turbulent world of first century Jewish expectation that there arose a movement saying to everyone's astonishment, including its own, that the crucified Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, had 
been raised from the dead. And it is to that movement within its first century Jewish world that we shall turn our attention this afternoon.